Welcome to Garfield Memorial Church. We are one church in three locations, Pepper Pike, Ohio, South Euclid, Ohio, and Liberia, Africa. Together, we seek to widen the circle through our core values of diversity, safety, authenticity, growth, and forgiveness. To learn more about Garfield Memorial Church, visit our website at garfieldchurch.org. And now, may you be blessed and inspired by our weekly podcast of the message from the 10 a.m. Sunday morning Mosaic worship service. Garfield Memorial Church, widening the circle. So glad you're worshiping with us today at Garfield Memorial Church, whether here in person or uh, we don't know how many locations online last week, 1,519, I don't know, but we're just so glad you're here and, and uh, we hope that uh, the Spirit of God is touching you through worship and you know, as Scott said, whatever uh, uh, walls or whatever you feel may be there, the good news is Jesus has removed all walls. He is the Lord and uh, it's just our job to live into that reality. So we're, we're glad you're here. We're in our series, Reconciled. Um, We've been in this series uh, for the last, I don't know, five or six weeks. Last week, uh, Steve hit out of the park with the, 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 you know, the, the message of the peace of reconciliation. And today, uh, if you saw my little tease on social media, and some of you did, I had people uh, give me opinions on my message already, and I didn't even preach it. I thought that was cool. Um, but my, my title was a little teaser to get folk online and get you in here. But it's true. It's how to be an agent of reconciliation during an election. That stirred up the internet this week. Um, and I know some of my greatest critics are online right now with their notepads. God loves you. I'm glad you're here. Um, basically, what was, was is I talk about this issue of reconciliation. I really didn't come to pick a fight. And I'm not preaching about the election. That was really to get your attention. It's it's really owning the, the culture of which we're in, okay? I certainly didn't come to talk about how to pick a candidate. I mean, in 30 years of ordained ministry, never once in those 30 years have I ever endorsed a political party or political candidate. I think that is not for preachers of the gospel to do, and any who do it, well, they, they can and I can just work out our salvation in fear and trembling. That's not been my call. Um, so, Here's the deal. I'm not going to come to you on the electoral college or redlining or any of that stuff. So if you're all disappointed, you need to leave or you need to go, that's okay. I came to talk about this ministry of reconciliation. How does that influence us? How does that guide us even in divisive times, right? And Paul, we're going to read his, his, his words in a minute. Um, from the church, but he is speaking to a divided church. He is speaking to a church in Corinth who is divided on all sorts of ways. They are divided ethnically. We've talked about that. If you're new to Garfield, uh, we talk about this a lot, Jew and Gentile. These were ancient ethnic hostilities. In fact, we preached earlier where it says Jesus tore down the dividing wall of hostility, which meant active hatred, historical enmity between us. And that's why I always say when you read your New Testament and it says Jew and Gentile, don't read Jew and Gentile. It's too tame for you. Read conservative and liberal. Read black and white. Read something that will stir it up for you. Because that's what it's talking about. 
And Corinth wasn't just in that historical ethnic enmity. They were also torn between economic lines. Corinth was a metropolitan city. It was a place of high trade. And in this church, people were dividing over who had a lot of resources and those who had none. The male and female divide we know was real. Some people were not comfortable the way Jesus empowered women in in just uh, radical ways. And also there was this spiritual divide in the Corinthian church that some decided, I don't care if I'm of the right persuasion or the right political party or the right economic strata, I have more Holy Spirit than you do. And they were those who spoke in tongues or had some gift of charisma, and they were better than others. And Paul runs into this church and speaks the message of reconciliation to a divided church. Let's look at his words. This is the crux of our series. Here's what Paul says. He says that uh, it's going to, we're coming. There it is. He says, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regard Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if any is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God. Watch, watch how many times this word comes up. Who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. How many know that's good news? <laughs> and he was committed and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. What God? The God who made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is Paul's message of reconciliation. This is Paul's message to us right now. He said, this is our work. This was God's work in Jesus Christ, and God has given us this work, transferred to us this ministry of reconciliation. And we, you know, all the time, this is our job, all the time, not some of the time. It's not multiple choice, right? It's not pending on the weather. It's not pending on if the Browns go five and two. This is our job. Like we, some of us say, well, you know, I'll be in that, but everybody's so uptight right now, so I'll just kind of wait. No. If you read Paul in prison, he writes to Timothy, he said, you preach this gospel whether the season is favorable or unfavorable. And you say, well, why, Chip, why, why are you talking about this right now? I mean, don't religion and politics, they don't mix, right? Uh, we don't think that should happen. Uh, you were raised to talk, not talk to strangers about two things, right? What? Religion and politics, right? And I will say this, I don't think religion and politics should miss, mix, but... If you've been around here, you know I don't think Christianity is a religion. Religion, the world had enough religions when Jesus got here. Religion is, here's all these rules, follow all these rules, then God will love you, then God will bless you. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said there's nothing you can do to make, to earn your salvation. 
You can't earn it, but God came and gives it to you as a free gift. So go live in gratitude for that. Now, if you have religion, a bunch of rules, and politics, a bunch of rules, and you conflate those things, we've seen some real bad things happen. But that says nothing about my faith in Jesus Christ and how that dictates who I am and how I am and actually where I am, right? And I I was talking with a friend this past month about a, a passage that often gets confused in this and like, you know, you keep politics here, you keep religion here. And it's, do you remember the story where Jesus said, give to Caesar what Caesar's, give to God what's God? Like people look at that and they think, well, you know, what Jesus was saying is, you know, keep your politics, your, you know, your finances, your, you know, your, your opinions over here. And then come to Jesus about your spiritual stuff. That is a false fracture. That is, that is not, it's not reality. <clears throat> in fact, if you read that story where Jesus talks about this, it's a wonderful story in scripture where it really came up. Let me just fly by it real quick. He says, you know, there's some Pharisees and Herodians. That's really interesting. Pharisees, religious people, the Herodians were a political party. These two groups hated each other. <laughs> but this isn't interesting. They conspired together to try to catch Jesus in his words. They came to him and said, teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Right? Taxes were a hot-button question. If you read this passage, they came after Jesus on everything to catch him in his words. They talk, if they came at him today, it'd be immigration. It'd be gun control, right? It'd be abortion. They'd come there. And they didn't come for the answer. They came for their answer. Right? Read what he says. Jesus knew their hypocrisy. He said, why are you trying to trap me? You're not here for, you're not here for truth. You're here for endorsement. Right? So you never know. It's very interesting. Read the Bible. Read Mark 3, other places. Every time they try to put Jesus into a trap, they fall in it. Right? He says to them, uh, bring me a denarii. Let me look at it. They brought the coin. Watch what he asked them. Whose image is this? And whose inscription? They said Caesar's. He said, fine. Then give back to Caesar with Caesar's and to give to God with God. And they were amazed at him. What's he doing? He's saying, whose image is there? Image was Caesar. And what's the inscription? Guess what the inscription was on the coins? Caesar is Lord. And the word Lord was the word Kyrios, which is a word for Christ. So so what Jesus is doing, he's putting them back in their corner, and he's saying, hey, um, you asked me about this. Here's what I'm going to ask you. What do you owe Caesar, and what do you owe God? And how you answer that question is going to really mitigate how you conduct yourself in the world. So I don't have, you know, you know if, you, if I say to myself, Jesus is Lord, then he influences everything. He influences, you know, how I'm a husband. He influences how I parent. He influences how I pastor. He influences how I try to be a good neighbor to others. And yes, he influences how I vote. That affects me, right? It affects every part of us. I love this saying by Abraham Kuyper. He was a great theologian. Abraham Kuyper said it this way, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ does not cry, mine. We belong to him. And Paul says when you do that and you understand that, you are an ambassador. You're an ambassador. That's what he said. You read in there. You're an ambassador. God has given us the ministry and the message of reconciliation, word and deed. And you're an ambassador now. 
of this good news. This, I always thought that'd be a kind of a cool job, wouldn't it be? You know, especially in Cleveland in January, you could be like an ambassador to Greece or, you know, France or I don't know. You know, wouldn't that be a cool job? Um, what is an ambassador, though? An ambassador is one who lives in another country, right? Loves that country, immerses themselves in the culture and the rhythms of the people there, learns to love and respect and honor that, but is always trying to bring a message also and a connecting point from another country. Isn't that the work of an ambassador, right? And that's the definition of who we are as followers of Christ, We're living in one country. We're respecting and loving and working. That's what Jeremiah said to the people who hated Babylon when they went to Babylon. He said, don't separate yourself. Love the city. Work for its good. Be in there. Be be in the world, just not of the world. We love, right? Uh, We love this earth and we're, we're, we're citizens of it. But as Paul says, we're a colony of heaven. We're representing a different kingdom. Now, If you're going to go be an ambassador to China or to Portugal or something, what's the first thing you have to learn? Class? Okay, they got it here. Kurt, are they getting it in the chat? In the chat. What's the first thing you have to learn? I don't know if they heard it over the mic. If they did, they can cheat. Okay. Right? You can't just learn to appreciate the food. You need to learn how to order the food. You need to learn how to speak the language, right? That's a job. Like, if I'm going to go be the ambassador to Russia, i got to learn Russian. That's just that's part of it. i got to be able to communicate. Isn't it interesting? Jesus Christ comes into the world. He shows us the, the coming kingdom and the kingdom that's right here right now. When he says the kingdom of God is in you. And we're representing that new kingdom. What is it? When any is in Christ, there is a new creation. But I love how it says it here. This is a little Greek. It says the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. I get it now. I see it. Jesus said, when you're born again, you see the new creation and you enter it. I'm living in it now, Paul says. So what has happened? We're like the flip side, upside down kingdom. Because not, only, not are we come into this world to be sent to another world. Jesus comes into this world. He educates us on the kingdom. We're already fluent in the language of this world. We don't have to go learn it. But what we have to learn is what? The language of the kingdom. And the language of God's kingdom is reconciliation. I love this term. It says reconciliation is God's language for a broken world. Here's how N.T. Wright says it. God's not claiming a world that did not belong to him, not making a new world out of nothing. But God is reconciling to himself his own world. His beautiful, beloved creation after long years of corruption. This is what Jesus came to do. This is why the, Paul says God was in Christ reconciling, bringing us back, right? He, would, he didn't come uh, with the wrath of God. Of course there's a wrath of God. God is angry against evil and injustice and oppression and, and sinfulness. God is always wrathful against But he doesn't come with that first primary word. He doesn't come to destroy. He comes to reclaim. He comes to reconcile us. And that's why the angel said to Joseph, you shall name him Yeshua, which means God saves because he will save his people from themselves. He's back. And that word save, whenever it's applied to Jesus, it's the word sozo in the Greek, which means rescue. Literally, you know what sozo means? It means to pull somebody back from the edge of a cliff. 
And that's why we started this series in the Garden of Eden. Eden, because what? We want to be our own bosses. We want to be our own Lord and Savior. We want to be our own kings and queens. And guess what happens when you try to do that? We are heading to the edge of a cliff whether we know it or not. And thank God that God in Jesus Christ comes not to push us over the cliff and start over, but comes to pull us back into the arms of a loving father. That's why I said the kingdom of God is like a shepherd that leaves the 99 to get the one at the edge of the cliff. That's why I said God is like a father with two sons, and one of the sons decided he'd be his own boss, and he'd run off to a form. We call him the prodigal. The other one didn't do so hot either, but we focus on the prodigal, and he ran off, and he was going to be his own boss, and, and it didn't work out so well, and finally, he returned to his father, and you know what that, that wonderful parable says. While he was still far off, the father saw him. You know what that means? That the father was pacing on that porch night and day. He didn't just happen to see him. That wasn't just a lucky moment. He had been looking for a chance to reclaim his son, and he did something no righteous Jewish man would do. He jumped off that porch and ran before the town could get to his kid. And he showered him with kisses on his neck and on his face as signs of forgiveness. And he brought him back into the fold. That's, that's how God looks at us. He wants reconciliation. He wants his kids back. And he's given to us this ministry of reconciliation. That's our job. That's our work. And you say, okay, Chip, that's fine. Preachy, a lot of words. How do we do it? Right? Let me tell you two things. First, there has to be a motivation for this and a method for this. And they're both in this passage that Paul teaches on. The first is the motivation. What does Paul preach to this Corinthian church earlier in his first letter? They're broken. They're messed up. They're divided. They think, you know... One is better than the other, and one party's more perfect than the other, and all these things. And Paul goes in with 1 Corinthians 13. Now, I know you've heard those, that passage read at weddings. How many of you know it has nothing to do with the wedding? But it's okay. Nothing to do with, you know, uh, a man and woman getting married or whatever. Nothing to do with it. But they're good words to read no matter what. He was speaking to a divided world and a divided church when he said, if I can speak in the tongues of men and angel, if I got all that and more but don't have love, I'm just noise. If I have the gift of prophecy, if I give my life to be burned, if I'm such a martyr, but I don't love divine love, I am nothing. And do you notice in this passage, when Paul talks about reconciliation, he bookends it in God's love for the world. He, he puts it within two amazing statements, Right? That, 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 God, that, that the love of God compels us because, we're, because what? Because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. Jesus died for all, that we should no longer live for ourselves but him. See, he's talking about the love of God in Jesus Christ at the beginning. And at the end, he says, and what this love, why this love happened is because he, God made him to, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteous of God. He bookends everything he says about reconciliation and the love of God. And look at that first word. And that love compels us. Do you know what that word compel means? It, it, it means it, it's right. In fact, one translation means it restrains me. It constrains me. It controls me. 
Talk to athletes about this. My goal was to get a Division I college basketball scholarship. That was my goal. I wasn't that good. Made a couple 15 All-Americans, but that was my goal. And to accomplish that goal, I had because I loved the game, I had to constrain myself sometimes. My mom still laughed. My sophomore year, I passed updates to homecoming because I was out on the outdoor courts working on my crossover while people were driving up to the school. I, I, had, to, I had to work about my diet and certain things I did, right? And you talk about Olympic athletes? That goes on steroids, and that's just sports. How about if somebody calls you at 3 o'clock in the morning? How do you handle that call? I love my wife. My wife answers all our calls. Uh, for Garfield Memorial, she's our concierge for the church. Thank God uh, that you don't get me. Um, but you get her, and you know, she calls. I love when my wife answers the phone because if she's in the office, it goes there. If not, it rolls to her cell phone. So we'll be out somewhere. We'll be, you know, walking around or whatever, and the phone will ring, and she'll go, Ah, hello, Garfield Memorial Church. How can I help you? And I'm like, It's just always amazing. Like at three in the morning, is that how you'd answer the phone? Just curious, just a question. Do you go, hi, this is Chip. How can I help you? <laughs> no, you don't, right? But what if it's your child on the other end of that phone? What if it's your spouse? What if it's your grandchild? What if it's your best friend? What if it's somebody you love? You will get up out of the bed and drive through a blizzard. Why? Because the love of that person compels you. It constrains you. It restrains you. Now think about that within the cosmic love of God for us in Jesus Christ, right? That ought to constrain us. That ought to restrain us. That ought to change us. Paul says, I was compelled into the world. You think Paul wanted to do this work? Paul was killing people that didn't agree with him. The Bible said he was breathing violence. You think people on CNN and Fox News and MSNBC are spouting so you should have read Paul. Paul would just, he would stone you. But he met Jesus Christ. He said, his love now compels me. It changed me. There's a new creation. And the people that I thought I was against, now I am for. And I'm among them as one of them because his love compels me. That's why I like to say the work of reconciliation is God's answering love. I'm sorry, is our answering love to the Messiah who loved us as much. What is your answering love? How do we respond to that? Right? The love of Christ compels us. Right? So if you want to live, you know what's big right now? Individual freedom, individual rights. I think that's really cool. Guess what? Christianity knows nothing about that. Just doesn't. What did it say at the beginning? He, that those who live should no longer live for themselves. That his love compels us. See, if you want to live free, if you want to have no constraints, if you want to not answer the phone at three in the morning, don't love anybody. But if you love somebody, you are no longer free. You are constrained. Let me be real controversial, right? We're all sitting in here with these things on, our face coverings, and you guys know. And this thing has become such a hot button. It's so weird. Um, but, you know, everybody's all about, you know, what some people are saying about these, it just kills me. Like, oh, that's, you know, that's my individual right. And, you know, if you wear, they start saying, you're, you're a sheep. They, there's a new plural for sheep. Did you know that? It's sheeple. Like, I used to think, I used to think it was, here's the church, here's the steeple, open the door. Now it's, there's the sheeple. I didn't, never heard of it before. But it's this, and I had somebody really bombarded me one time. Oh, I guess you're just a sheep. You're part of the sheeple. And you know what I said? You bet I am. 
You bet I am. I'm a sheep. I'm a sheeple to a great shepherd. <laughs> and he laid down his life for his sheep. And if I got to deal with some inconvenience or personal sacrifice to love my neighbors, count me in. Why? Because the love of Christ compels me. See, we're in Halloween. Paul Scott brought it up. I wasn't going to break it up. He's a sinner, but I got to redeem it. And I don't know if you, I grew up in the 70s, okay? Don't you laugh over in this section over here. I grew up in the 70s, and there were two absolute terrifying movies made in the 70s that all of us had to go get therapy for. One of them was Jaws, right? Steven Spielberg should have been sent to the island of of Patmos like John was. He should have been exiled for making that movie. I'm a fisherman. I love the water. I saw that movie when I was like 12, man. And I'm going to tell you, in the middle of the night, if I woke up and my leg fell over the mattress, ah! I was like terrified. Like it's going to, I'm just going to wake up with no leg. And the second one was The Exorcist. Remember that? I know none of you good Christian people saw that movie more than four times. Um, anyhow, you know, you know the movie. It's iconic, right? You know, Linda Blair, Pete, head turn around. All this. That was a terrifying movie when you were 12, right? And do you remember the priest, the representative of God? Do you remember for like the last third of the movie, all they did was throw holy water on this kid and say the same thing? Anybody remember the line? They got it in here. How about you online? Kurt? Anybody gets it? Nobody. The whole internet is holy. All the sinners came in today. No, I'm kidding, kidding, kidding. But he's right. The power of Christ compels you. The power, like the thorn holder, the power of Christ compels over and over and over. And I'm like, come on, let the power of Christ just get out, right? It compels you. Do you realize we got people running around in this world doing the very same thing, throwing their ideas, spitting up their political opinions, throwing their ideology on people, saying the power of Christ compels you. I want an army of people that says that the love of Christ compels me and it thrusts me out of my comfort zone it thrusts me out into the world to seek reconciliation does that mean I will not speak truth to power no does that mean that I ever kowtow to situations and don't face injustice no does that mean I don't believe what Martin Luther King Jr. said where he said the church is never the servant of the state always the conscious of the state you bet I believe that but it means that in the midst of that the language from the other kingdom is reconciliation and Christ's love is compassion Telling me to do that hard work. Oh, it's hard work. But he's calling me to do it. That's, that's the motivation. So what's the methodology? I mean, how do we do it? Paul gives a hint of that, something I had never really seen. I, I understood it, but I understand better. He said, uh, so now, <laughs> so after, you know, we, we have been compelled into the world through Christ. He said, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. We don't see people now from a worldly point of view. That's very interesting. You know what I call that? I call that learning to have soft eyes, seeing with soft eyes. What does that mean? Uh, Alan Hirsch is a great uh, uh, mission, missiologist with the Christian church. He just wrote a book I love. Um, you know the Reformation with Martin Luther? He wrote a new book called Reclamation, Reclaiming People in the World for Christ. And I got one of my friends down here, one of our trustees, who was a lifetime Cleveland detective, and he talks about detectives. So 
He's going to critique me after, but it's Alan Hirsch, not me. But Alan said that detectives need to go into scenes with soft eyes. He said, because people with hard eyes already know what they're seeing before they see it. People with hard eyes have already prejudged the situation. See, that's how racial profiling happens. That's how labeling people happens. Because you already know before you see. But a good detective goes in and sees to know. Abraham Heschel, the great rabbi, he said it this way. He said, our sight is suffused with knowing instead of feeling painfully the lack of knowing. What we see, the principle to be kept in mind is to know what we see rather than to see what we know. See, oftentimes we just look at things to confirm what we already believe. Instead, of, That's hard eyes, right? Hard eyes have a predisposition to know everything. They, they have an unwillingness to look deeper. They've already reached a conclusion before they really see the scene. And what did Jesus say? I don't look the way you look. You look on the outward appearance. I look beyond that upon the heart. See, what do hard eyes see? They see Rahab. The, you know, who ran the best little, you know, what house down in uh, Jericho. They see Legion, the crazy man. They see Zacchaeus, the tax swindler. They see Mary Magdalene, the mental patient. They see the woman at the well who's on late night TVs, on reality shows and gossip. But Jesus saw potential ambassadors for the kingdom. How many of you are glad that Jesus, the Lord of the universe, our great shepherd, has soft eyes? There's an old gospel song. There's an old gospel song that said, He looked beyond my faults and saw my needs. And grace rescued me. See, Paul was rescued by grace. He didn't get, God didn't give Paul what he deserved. He gave him grace and it and it and it and it changed his entire life. Let me end with a story here. I heard Pastor Terry gave it to me about Henry Nowen. Henry Nowen was a great Catholic mystic. Uh, he's gone on to be with God. But he spent the rest of his, the end of his life, after all his writings, he spent his life working in um, mental institutions at the time, what it was called, being among people who I've learned to say learn in special ways, right? And he was among that community. And he had met a young man named Trevor, and Trevor and he became very, very close. And Trevor had kind of an incident with bipolar, what have you, reaction to medication. And he needed to be sent to a different kind of more intensive treatment facility. And um, Henry Nowen called that facility after Trevor had been there for a few months or so. And he said, I'd I'd like to come be at your facility. Now, when Henry Nowen comes, that's big news. So he said, hey, would you mind us having this big lunch for you? And we'll have all of our professionals gather. And you can speak to them over the lunch. And here's what it was called, our golden room. And Nowen said, sure, I'd love to come and talk to the folks. And he came to that place to do the lunch. And and when he went to the lunchroom, he thought he'd be sitting by Trevor. But they said Trevor wasn't allowed in the golden room. And Henry Nowen said, well, I'm not going into the golden room without Trevor. Now the PhDs had a problem. And so they went to find Trevor because they didn't want uh, Henry Nowen to miss the chance to be with this great mind. So they brought Trevor in and they put him on the dais next to Henry Nowen. And while everybody was eating, he and Trevor were having a wonderful conversation. And then it came time for Henry Nowen to speak. And he went up to the microphone and everybody had their iPads out, you know, and, and all their things. They were ready to go with the notes. And all of a sudden, Trevor jumped up and said, I want to give a toast. And he said, Oh, Lord, what's he going to do? 
And he started to sing. If you're happy and you know it, raise your glass. If you're happy and you know it, raise your glass. There was silence in the room. And poor Trevor looked out again and said, I don't think you heard me. I want to give a toast. And suddenly the people with soft eyes began to sing. If you're happy and you know it, raise your glass. If you're happy and you know it, raise your glass. If you're happy and you know it, then your eyes will see with soft eyes. Do you see it? Do you see it? Can you, can you live for it? Can you push through for it? Can you have the motivation? Can the love of Christ thrust you into the world? Can you be compelled? I remember when I served in Elyria, I was serving in a, in a low-income community and high crime, and my wife and I went in there, and, and, and we were working in this church, and it was on the south side where people were neglected, and there was the public housing. They called it the projects. We did public housing. We had all these kids coming in. We had this wonderful ministry, and there were some terrible things uh, proposed to do against those, the, the folks in this, in this community. In fact, there were homeowners that wanted them to lock up the entrances into this place so they didn't even have to see the people driving up and down down their street and they didn't seem to care but our church cared because we were right in the heart of these these are folk this is our familia and so I went before the city council and I went before the mayor's office and I went there the mayor and I became good friends but he told me boy you are a royal pain and you know what and I said I know and I love you too in Jesus name but I was going and they were doing this thing. I went to the fire department. The fire department said what they're proposing, we wouldn't even have hoses long enough to get to some of the apartments in this public housing if there was a fire. What's wrong with these people? But they were going to go ahead and I kept going and I kept going. You ever know Moses went before Pharaoh? Do you notice he always said the same thing? He didn't change his message, let my people go. I just kept going saying this is unjust. This is evil. This is wrong. I went to city council. Mayor Keys never let me forget. I went to city council, and I got up to speak. It was like my 15th one in a row. And finally, the guy goes, he says, Reverend Fareed, we know what you're here to talk about. It's not on our agenda tonight. I said, now it is. And I'll never forget, he looked at me and said, Reverend Fareed, we're having a hard time figuring you out. And you know when the Holy Spirit gives you just the right words? And I said, well, I'm not running for anything. And my allegiance is to another kingdom. See, that's God's love compelling us in the world. Can you, can you walk that way? Can you talk that way? Can you have that message and that ministry? It's hard work. Reconciliation involves a spilling of bloods and a crown of thorns and, and nails in, in, in your hands and spears in your side. But this is the work God has called us to because God was in Christ reconciling. Now let's jump out into the world that way with soft eyes and with a changed and transformed heart. In Jesus' name, I pray it. Amen.